you so much for coming to Global Right to Women's Conversation Series, Valiant Voices. I'm Naza Fauzirzada, the Program Coordinator for Global Rights for Women, an organization founded in 2014 to end domestic and sexual violence around the world. Valiant Voices is a conversation series created by Global Rights for Women that features the human rights advocates and survivors addressing injustice and disrupting oppressive systems that cause harm. These are the stories of powerful leaders creating change in their communities and around the world. I would like to introduce to you our guest moderator, Vanessa Mercado Diaz, Master of Human Rights graduate from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. The focus of her research is women's rights, migration, and Latin America, and she wants to begin a career in the prevention of gender-based violence and femicide. She is currently a graduate researcher with the Center on Women, Gender, and Public Policy at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Naziva, for that introduction. Um, and it's my pleasure to be here today. I'm truly honored to be able to uh, have this conversation with our amazing panelists. Um, which are Comfort Dondo and Rosario de la Torre. Um, Comfort Dondo is a current PhD candidate with St. Mary's University. Her area of focus is leadership and policy development analysis. She is the founding executive director of Fumulani, African Women Against Violence. It is a culturally specific agency that serves African women in the diaspora. Its areas of focus are gender-based violence prevention and advocacy for policy changes to be more inclusive and equitable. Comfort currently sits on the governor's tax task force ending violence on, in Minnesota and also consults with local, national, and international agencies, including the United Nations, UN Women, UNFP, and with the National Alliance to End Sexual Violence, the city of Minneapolis and the city of Brooklyn Park here in Minnesota. The Minnesota uh, Coalition Against Sexual Assault and the Minnesota Coalition for Battered Women. Her work includes advising the Black Diaspora Policy Agenda on ending child sexual abuse, lobbying in partnership with the Washington DC and New York Rape Crisis Center, among other organizations. And they are drafting policies that will change how sexual, how child sexual abuse is responded to by law enforcement. In her spare time, Comfort is a co-host on two local TV shows in Minnesota, Women of the World and Empire Radio TV show. She openly engages with the African diaspora and work around ending gender-based violence by engaging men and youth as preventative measures. She is a mother to three children, a 10-year-old son, and a set of seven-year-old twins. So our second panelist is Rosario de la Torre. She is the co-director of family advocacy and community engagement for Casa de Esperanza, an organization whose mission is to mobilize Latinas and Latino communities to end domestic violence. Rosario has been in this position for 19 years. Rosario is an experienced advocate in the areas of domestic violence, sexual assault, trafficking, and victimization. A, response and a responsive and accomplished professional, she has demonstrated leadership and organizational skills. Her success in part is a testimony to her communication skills, both, both among her staff and across the organization. She has vast experience in training nationally and internationally in areas of Latinx advocacy, court advocacy, and crisis line management. She is a highly respected and experienced advocate. So with that, uh, thank you so much for our, to our panelists and we can begin with the conversation with a couple of questions. So 
the first question that we have for our panelists is, could you tell us about the importance of culturally competent and culturally centered domestic violence responses and services? Um, I can start. Uh, thank you. Gracias. Um, buenas tardes. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I, like you said in my bio, I've been working with Casa de Esperanza this time around for 19 years. I started back in uh, 1992 and I work as an advocate. And um, when I was an advocate from, you know, Casa de Esperanza has been in existence for almost 40 years now. And uh, back in the day, Casa de Esperanza was founded by uh, five Puerto Latinas who needed to really um, provide the support and services to survivors of domestic violence in the Latinx community. With that being said, uh, Casa de Esperanza was a Latina uh, shelter for domestic violence survivors, but was providing a very traditional, you will, you know, model, was a very traditional model and providing services to, to the you know, survivors of domestic violence, Latinos from the Latina community and the non-Latina community. So what we have learned throughout the years is that providing advocacy and support services for survivors of domestic violence, gender violence in the Latinx community is much more than just doing traditional services. So throughout the history of Casa de Esperanza, there's been a lot of you know, changes and evolution. Casa de Esperanza is a very strong, uh, organizations that went from being a domestic violence organization to a Latinx uh, uh, organization that is a Latina organization working with survivors of gender violence. What that means is that Casa de Esperanza center its services and approaches in the Latino realities. Uh, we created very different ways of providing advocacy because we know that in order for us to be effective with our community, we need to know the reality of our survivors. And we have Latina women leading the work of Casa de Esperanza because we believe in the strength of the community. We believe in the reality that, you know, survivors who come to our program are the ones who know the reality of their own lives and their own experiences. So for any organization who is culturally relevant, I think the main thing is to um, listening to the community, understand and knowledge and honor the communities they're working with to be able to be more effective in providing services. So for Casa de Esperanza, it's one of the key elements is to be, you know, to listen to the community, to learn from the community and to evolve based on the community needs and the community strengths. I, um, to add on to what my, um, my fellow uh, panelist, uh, Ms. Rosaria said, um, I, I do believe that, um, culturally relevant, culturally specific services are vital on ending gender-based violence because the solutions on any social issues actually lie within the communities that I, I have really impacted. The solutions cannot come from the outside. And we have seen this time and again. I'll give an example in our um, community, the African immigrant community. We have seen um, a high uh, homicide rates uh, for women because they, they um, are sometimes opposed to get, going to mainstream shelters because they believe some of the mainstream shelters do not cater to their um, cultural needs. It can be as basic as um, maybe even just the, the kind of foods that are being fed to their children or some of the cultural norms that are not observed in those, uh, in those spaces. So women tend not to want to go to those, um, to those mainstream shelters. Hence, you know, increasing their risk of going back to the abuser and then getting killed. Uh, and so um, as a community, the African immigrant community specifically, 
we came together um 2015 and we did a, a extensive research i think and interviewed at least 300 um domestic uh, abuse uh, survivors and victims and the answers were consistent uh with the fact that uh the cultural communities that are impacted by any issue usually have always have the solutions they just need to be given the opportunity to um, say it in their own language, uh, to say it in their own ways, uh, and then have that uh, be given to the policymakers so that they're able to uh, draft policies that actually um, can serve back the community. Uh, and unfortunately, we've seen that you know, uh, due to uh, things like race, racism, uh, white supremacy, it has always been the other way around. It has always been uh, solutions coming from the top to the bottom. And that does not work as we have seen in this movement. I guess with that, for me, that is um, why I think it's it's absolutely um, critical to have the voices of the communities impacted by any social issue in the middle of the conversation. Did you want to add anything, Rosario? Or? No, I mean I totally agree with uh, with Concord. I think one of the things that White Casa de Esperanza has been involved in, you know, and during this forty years, is because we believe that. You know, the, the, you know, our philosophy is our mission is mobilize Latino and Latino communities to end domestic violence. And I think that's kind of echo what um, Comfort was mentioning about, you know, the community has the answer for their, you know, for, we have our answer for our um, issues, if you will. I don't like the word issue, but that's what it is, right? Our problems are also our you know, opportunities as well. I remember Lupe Serrano, uh, what the, one of the directors, that you know, when we make the whole you know change in the in the direction of the organization, she said, you start with um, problems, right? With challenges, you ending up with programs. But you you start with the strength, and the you know you ending up with opportunities. So for us, treating the community as the experts, and you know really embracing that strength and the service you know, survivor and the resiliency of our community is uh, how we really see the positive impact in dealing with domestic violence and many other issues and gender violence affecting our communities. Yes, I think both of you mentioned really important aspects of centering that survivor experience. Um, is there, just to little, go a little bit more off of that, um, are there any specific initiatives or strategies that uh, you all do that it that um, inform the work that you do specifically regarding the survivor experience. You know, we do different. Uh, we have a couple of different things. One is uh, our, you know, that we collect from survivors for participants who are part of our, you know, receive services from Casa de Esperanza because we need to know specifically about services and advocacy. What can we do better? What are the realities of our communities? What are the things that are changing within our community? How we need to adjust and adapt to some of the new nuances in the community, right? So we have a, a, an evaluation for survivors who come to a program and we ask things about, you know, challenges and, and, and opportunities, but, you know, based on services and advocacy. But one very important component of Casa de Esperanza is to our community engagement. Our initiative is what we call uh, Forza Unida, United Strength. And through that initiative, we conducted um, different listening sessions and with the community at large, because in order for us to really be effective in working with the community, with the Latinx community, we need to know what are the, you know, the reality for the community, the general community. Because uh, one, one thing that you know, at Casa de Esperanza, we, we hope to do is that anybody from the community who is facing 
difficult times with gender violence and is having, you know, to look for services will feel comfortable doing that. So we need to be present at the community. We need to be part of the community. So in one of the first listening sessions back in 1999, for, for example, what we learned from the community, from women and um, the main areas, Minneapolis and St. Paul through the listening sessions, is that Latinas wanted to see more the presence of the organization in the community, right? You know, when Casa de Esperanza started it, you know, Laura, you've been, you know, doing this work for many years as well. It was very, um, all the domestic violence programs were very secretive, right? Location was very uh, confidential. We will still have in that, but the programs, the domestic violence program will perceive and view in the community as, uh, you know, this place where just, you know, with separating families and, and, um, breaking marriages and, you know, telling women to do things that they were not wanting to do. And we learned from the community by, you know, that they needed Casa de Esperanza to be in the community, to be part of the community, because we all are part of, part of the solution. What, what, what we learned through the listening sessions as well is that the community wanted to be part of the change, right? There was in Casa de Esperanza's uh, Role. I, our mission, I believe, back in the day was the CASA was access to end domestic violence. It was a very ambitious mission, right? And great mission. But the reality is that as an organization, we can do that alone. And uh, what, what we learned from the community also is in the community wanted to see more resources, the community for the community by the community, because the stressors are, uh, you know, uh, one of the key elements that, you know, provoke domestic violence incidences. Uh, stressors are, you know, very high in our community, particularly the new immigrant community. So we learn those things and we adjust and we change some of the initiatives that we ha initially had. As you know, as I mentioned, we had a very traditional model, very mainstream model, and we needed to change that and totally shift the, the approach and working with our survivors and the Latinx community. Perfect, thank you so much. Um, yeah, you really encompassed that really well of how this traditional model just might work generally, but with different communities, different uh, pockets of populations, it just isn't enough. Um, and with that, I think, um, as you talked about a little bit too, some of these challenges impact communities different too. So um, is there, what types of challenges or uh, difficulties are communities facing that exacerbate gender-based violence? So maybe things like, um, as we've seen recently with immigration status or COVID-19, um, education, all of these things. So anything within those areas? Uh, we, I think I can expect to this, you know, for a couple of hours, but I'm going to concentrate in the realities that you know, perhaps if we think about COVID-19 and how everything changed change in the last year or so, we have seen how our communities, any community is facing so many challenges, right? Employment, uh, housing, uh, services uh, for the Latinx communities in, and particularly for the new immigrants and for undocumented survivors is even more than that. And I'm gonna to talk, to, you know, for survivors of domestic violence, but also for families, just any families that, I mean, one thing that come to mind just in a very simple example of how impacted our communities are that it may be different than the, the other communities is that if you are an immigrant, um, you know, you are a family of, you know, who is undocumented, who are new immigrants and are facing some of this, 
challenges because COVID-19, right? Um, we know that in, um, many of many, many many community members work in industries that are, you know, the food industry, the cleaning industry, and they lost their jobs. And some of uh, us that are citizens or residents or have a legal status in this country, we receive some uh, remedies, right? Financial support from the government. You think about that, uh, undocumented you know, families that we work with, they don't qualify for a lot of this um, remedies. So there's you know, resources that are, you know, a lot of times people don't think about it. You just give it for granted. If I'm a, <clears throat> a family of under, you know, like um, in the poverty level that you will, uh, there is some resources available, but with so those resources, there's some requirements. And a lot of times our families don't, um, don't fulfill those requirements. So on top of all the, you know, the, the challenges that you, we see with any other communities for the immigrant communities, for the Latinx community, for the undocumented, it's even more than that. The whole uh, sense of, uh, I, people say anti-immigrant sentiment for I think for our communities, the anti-immigrant reality that we are facing based in what, I mean, fortunately that is changing and I hope continues to change, but that's a big reality, right? That the, the resources that are available for some of the families, I mean, they are um, from this country or from this, um, they are documented, not available for undocumented families. Employment is huge, legal assistance, uh, housing, housing is one of the biggest challenges that our families face just in general. Like when we talk about affordable housing, for me, that, you know, war is so like, no, we don't have affordable housing. That's a concept that it doesn't exist in Minnesota. And I think it's just across the country in general. Um, was there any type of um, different changes or challenges your center had to adapt to with, especially with COVID-19 this past year? Oh, yes. When one thing that I can say about, we had a meeting that it was actually a Zoom um, webinar about reflection of the last years, you know, and we just a little bit over a year now. Uh, when I, like I will say two things. One is that our services never stop. We continue to have our shelter program open, uh, continue with different, um, new different ways, right, of providing services. We have to be very uh, conscious of the distance, the distance, the social distancing and making sure that the, so, uh, the residents and the advocates have the equipment to be able to be in the same place. And I'm saying PPE equipment mainly. And we, <clears throat> so our shelter program was open 24 seven as usual. I will say that one of the biggest challenges in that is that the stays at the shelter were a little bit longer because everybody, everything changed in March, right? So some of the participants who had employment and they were to move into their own place, they were residents at the refugio, they probably needed to change everything, right? And they were ending up staying longer. Uh, for our advocacy uh, initiative, we have advocates working from home. And I think learning how to do that and adapting to that, it was also very difficult, not only for Casa de Esperanza advocates, but for any other advocacy programs. Um, we started to providing services via Zoom and via phone. And we also needed to think about what are the safe way, ways to continue being connected with survivors 
if everybody is at home, right? And what one thing that we learned is that because of the pandemic and what people were experiencing at home, the volume of cases uh, is much higher than prior to COVID because it's, uh, it's so many factors that influence that. But I can think that one is that people, you know, families were staying at home all together. So imagine those stressors in a family setting, right? From the parents to be um, working to be a, a teacher or a tutor or helping their children to learn distance, uh, to learn how to help them to be at home learning. Um, the, what do you call that? Learning, distance learning, I'm sorry. I blanked on that, uh, distance learning. And not knowing the language and not knowing how to access all these platforms to help your children to be to continue education. So a lot of those things change in, in our participants' life and our, the families that we work with. And also impacted us as you know, advocates. Um, uh, we had to make our house, our office, our you know, dining table, table, our desk that convert into a dining table after five, probably. So I think we can learn a lot during COVID. We learn how to be flexible. We learn how to support each other. We learn how to take care of ourselves, but also how to be available to take care of our communities and, and being very, very flexible in the way we provide services. And um, we are very creative, I will have to tell you, I think as an organization, in organizations working with, with um, gender violence, we have to be very creative, very innovative, and very flexible. Because domestic violence, gender violence doesn't stop. Yes, thank you for all that. Um, we are nearing the time for questions. So right now, if anyone has any questions, you can go ahead and drop them in the chat. Um, and hopefully Comfort will rejoin us and answer some of these as well. Um, and we also have other questions if we don't see any popping. I do see one question in the chat. Hi everyone, I'm Laura Wilson. It's great to be here with you, Rosario and Vanessa. Um, and thank you so much for everything that you've um, shared with us so far. So I see a question, are there culturally specific better intervention programs available for offenders in the Latinx community? I'm sure, I mean, I can speak to Casa de Esperanza as a national organization, right? I just happen to be local and I am in charge of the local initiative, the intervention part of the, you know, the services of Casa de Esperanza. We particularly do not have um, programming for um, butters, you know, per se. I know there across the, the country, there is some that are very specific to different you know, cultural groups. And I can find that information for you. We work with organizations that may not be culturally relevant, but they are um, working and providing the services to very specific communities for voters. Uh, what we have in Casa de Esperanza in the prevention part of the work is that we, about two, three weeks ago, we created our men and boys, uh, engagement and boys uh, in gender violence, because we believe that, you know, in order for one of the things that we'll hear from the community is, yes, you have services for, you know, women and children, women and girls even, right? Back in the day, I'm talking about back in the day. And one thing that we heard is that about our boys, 
what about our partners? What about you know community members who want to be part of the solution, want to be part of the change, and they just don't know how to get involved? So Casa de Esperanza, and what we learn also by having those groups and this you know gatherings is that you know gender violence, and I don't want to say it in any specific culture, but it's one thing that people don't think about. I'm perpetrating violence, right? A lot of times it's uh, is something that has been learned, and we know that that domestic violence it has, you know, it's um, it's a behavior that it, you know was learned. They can be unlearned. So we use those opportunities to really engage the community in general to unlearn some of those behaviors. And men and boys have to be in those conversations. So we see that from this um, prevention part of the work. That's such a great point. And it's something that I think is really unique about Casa de Esperanza that I've admired for a long time and that we see really around the world more of a recognition of the role of men and boys and the need, you know, to focus on changing um, beliefs, changing, you know, learned behaviors, things like that. So thank you for that, Rosario. Um, I see a couple of other questions. Um, one is, um, have you noticed any significant change in the amount of reports from your CPS or legal authorities, so Child Protective Services, since the start of the pandemic? And the, um, this is um, Jeanette Orozco. She says, here, here we have noticed as much a much lower number of referrals, especially from our immigrant families, despite knowing that the concerns for safety are rising at home. Do you have any recommendations for how to reach out to these families who might not be getting representation? You so know, it's very it's very interesting, but we haven't seen, and I think prior to the pandemic, we started to see an increased number of cases that you know were involved in child protection services. And I don't have numbers, unfortunately, right now, but what it's my sense for my checking and my everyday work with advocacy is that we have seen the number of uh, cases increase. There is, you know, there are involved child protection cases, and it's very sad to say. It. And again, I don't want to say numbers because I don't want to say something that is not. Um, I mean, it's real. I just don't have the numbers, but we see more of the sexual, um, sexual violence cases involving children, and it's this. It seems to be, is you know, growing, and I can have a couple different. Um, Thanks for what that happened that I think it happens because the, the one good thing and I wanted to think that's why it's happening is because people know more about services and more about resources. And I think the more you are out in the community and the people know that we exist and the service providers and systems know that we exist, the more likely we're gonna be involved and the more likely we're gonna be able to support families when they, you know, situations like this happen. And it was something about um, suggestions. Can you repeat that, Laura? Sure, yeah. So um, the, the comment was that they've noticed a much lower number of referrals, especially from immigrant families. I'm assuming this is maybe during COVID-19. Do you have any recommendations for how to reach out to these families? No, what we are being very creative uh, with the way we do our um, reach to the community. Uh, we do it in uh, very different ways. Uh, what we learned perhaps with our community is then being present. We do a lot of informal um, check-ins with, you know, through social media, through the new, the not only social media, but even through different activities in the community. One thing that it was very important for, for me in working with Casa de Esperanza during COVID is that the Latinx um, community organizations come together 
and we formed this network of for 59 statewide organizations to address. I mean, initially it was COVID-19, right? It's like, what do we do? All these things are happening with our families, but it was above and beyond just one thing. So I think being able to be, uh, you know, communicating to each other, if somebody has a Facebook live, perhaps what we're doing right now is to reiterate and to let families know that we are available, that the services haven't stopped, that, you know, confidentiality is still, and safety is still one of our main points, you know, working when we work with survivors of domestic violence, be available for the school systems. You know, a lot of the students, and hopefully that will change as we continue to deal with, you know, COVID-19, going back to a school, you know, letting teachers and school systems know that we are available, that we're still here. People, have, you know, in the better beginning, people will ask those questions, is CASA still open? Are advocacy still available? And the reality is that none of those organizations ever stop services. And like I mentioned before, uh, the numbers have increased. So I think it's continued to letting the community know that we're still available and the services are here and the advocates are 24 seven, are always willing and able to listen and to have a, a conversation and think about a safety in a very different way. It's very important. And I welcome, you know, I could disclose some of those strategies, but I think I won't do that. But we have to adapt and how do we do the safety planning with survivors during COVID? Thank you very much. Um, I see that Comfort has rejoined, but I can't tell, um, is your internet connection working Comfort? Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. I'm so sorry about that. I'm, I'm, we've been having some issues all morning. So uh, thank you, but I've rejoined. Um, I might not be able to get my camera on. I don't know what's going on, but then I'm, I'm, I'm here, so. Okay, welcome back. Vanessa, would you mm -hmm. like to pose one of those earlier questions for comfort? Yeah, of course. Um, we touched on a little bit of different topics, but I think the main parts of it were that um, what types of challenges are communities facing um, regarding uh, gender-based violence and how are those responses also culturally specific, including like responses with COVID-19, um, education, immigration status, so any of those areas that uh, you might want to share with us. Absolutely, Vanessa, and um, yeah, thank you. You know, um, since since um, COVID-19 hits the globe, um, 2020, March, we, we also see um, a significant rise in uh, domestic violence calls. Um, and um, I think I, for me, I would, I would call it, you know, a pandemic within a pandemic itself. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think it, it really, uh, COVID-19 really showed uh, some of the stresses that uh, we would know are already there in our community. Uh, so I will, I will give a few scenarios. Um, some of the challenges our communities face um, is the historical mistrust, distrust um, of any governmental systems. Uh, and so I'll speak for African immigrant women that I will work with. Most of them are coming from war-torn countries. They already don't trust the government. Um, and, um, and so we've been seeing a lot of um, hesitancy to report. And then because of what COVID-19 has done, it's, it's caused a lot of more isolation. So for instance, um, the mainstream domestic violence shelters that we normally refer women to um, had sometime, at some point had to close down and or um, have women in motel hotels to facilitate the social distancing. Well, if they're, if they're in the hotel motel, it's another um, stressor for them because they are in isolation. And like when they're in shelter, they are together with other women or in group. 
So that's really uh, made it a little bit more challenging. The second part um, for us has also been um, trying to work with the police departments, specifically mostly uh, the Minneapolis Police Department, and or for me, it's Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center Police Department, um, and just um, educating them, uh, which has really been a bit challenging because you know change is really hard, but educating them on how um, sometimes even the police departments themselves are used by abusers to further abuse the victims. Uh, so these are some of the main things that we've seen. But and of course, co with COVID nineteen, a lot of our um, a lot of our a lot of the women we work with have lost. Some of them have lost their work. A lot of them are in the um, hair braiding um, salon type of work. They've lost their work, and so we. Um, the, I think I mentioned earlier on the reluctancy to go to shelter. Um, I think with I think like with what um, Ms. Rosario's uh, agency does, Casa de Esperanza, is the same model for our our culturally specific communities where women really do not want to go to shelter but they want to be uh, supported from where they are. They want to stay in community. So when women lose their jobs, then they, they're at the verge of losing their apartments. So, so we've really, we've seen our work going from the prevention you know, of gender-based violence really to, to honing in on, on homelessness prevention, which on its own is a whole monster uh, to, you know, to, to fight as you, as you all know with the numbers. So yeah, so I think in short, I would say COVID-19 has really brought to light a lot of the issues we know already exist for historically marginalized communities that we serve, but it's, it's done so in a way where it's a pandemic, there's a lot of pressure. But I have to say, I've been very proud uh, to say, you know, to, to um, I've been very proud of how Minnesota as a state has responded. Um, I'll acknowledge the Department of Human Services, uh, the governor of um, office, um, of, uh, the office of the governor, um, uh, among other agencies, uh, Minnesota Department of Health, they've been really supportive but again, uh, we still see those disparities. And um, so, so those are just a few. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Mm -hmm. um, if I can add uh, to what uh, confirmation about the services, one thing that we, it's, we don't have learned so many things, right, in the evolution of Casa de Esperanza, but one of the reasons what we changed from being a, just a traditional model of being a, a shelter program to work in community and have community-based advocates in or what is called now mobile advocacy. It was that what well, does one of the main things that we heard from the community. We need the presence of advocates in the community. And that change happened back in 1998 is nothing that is new. I think a lot of the programs that are doing gender-based violence are now kind of taking that model of doing community advocacy, which I always kind of also want to say that it looks very different than Casa de Esperanza in what you know, comfort program does and being present at the what meet people where they are at, not having an advocate in a public place. No, that's a different kind of community advocacy because what we know is that 99% of the survivors we work with would not do not want it to leave the relationship. They want the relationship, the domestic violence or stuff. So for us to when we say we present in the community and we meet participants or survivors where they are at. We mean, we mean meet them where they are at, at their houses, at the school where the children go to, at the clinic they go to, at the coffee shop, that's the only place they have some freedom to go to. So that's a very important uh, approach that Casa de Esperanza has ever since 1998. And it's one of the best ways in, you know, for us to provide advocacy. Because we, again, that's what we know from the community. That's what we learn from the community survivors. 
That's why they needed the advocate persons in the community. And I'm gonna add one thing that my colleague just sent me a text and I'm gonna give credit to her, my co-director, Iveda Isea, is that La Oportunidad, I don't know how I forget that, but La Oportunidad in Minneapolis provides services for butter, uh, butters who are you know, from the Latinx community. So in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, we do have um, programming for Latinx. Um, Butters of you know who perpetrate domestic violence. I just want to make that clarification. Thank you, Vanessa. We do have a, a lot more questions in the chat now, so I know we only have about four more minutes. I'm going to try to combine two of these and um, ask you both if you could comment on um, how uh, it's uh, domestic and sexual assault or abuse agencies that are, um, the words used here are um, agencies in rural white America, but I would expand that to urban and suburban. It's also applicable um, or more organizations that are more mainstream, perhaps more um, have more power and privilege within the current systems. How can those organizations act as culturally responsive allies to organizations such as yours or to immigrant communities? I'm gonna let you respond to that conference and then I can add, I see that you unmute. Sure, yeah. Um, wow, well, you know, um, I think, um, I think I think one of the things that we um, would desire for like, like a true working a collaborative partnership would be um, genuinely stepping aside um, and allow the capacity building of culturally specific organizations um, including um, the support for them uh, to accessing resources that are meant for culturally specific programs. I'll give an example. Um, and I think Mr. Zauro would agree with me on this one. <laughs> I'm putting on the spot. I think, um, for example, if we are having funding that is designated to culturally specific programs, let's, let's as mainstream programs, let's make sure we give support to the culturally specific programs to attain as much of those resources over, uh, let's say, hiring culturally specific advocates in our programs that are already at a capacity that is a higher, because we know historically culturally specific programs reflect the marginalized communities from where they come from. That is, our, our capacity is not as well built. Um, we, we are working on fumes most of the time, just because of the way the system is set up. And I'm not gonna go into the systemic um, uh, you know, racism talks here, but I, I, I think for me, true allyship is really um, what um, I would also like to shout out to the Violence Free Minnesota Executive Director, Liz Richards. She has exemplified that uh, in my journey where she really has stepped in as a leader and actually hold hands of our program as a culturally newer program. And whenever there's resources for culturally specific programs, she has really been um, supporting that we grow our capacity that way. For me, this is what, is, what true allyship is. Uh, true allyship is not just in the talking, it is actually in the doing, I think. Um, and then I think the, the second thing um, is also um, being open, um, removing attachments from the old ways of doing things. And I mean, what I mean this is, um, we, we know that the, uh, the mainstream programs, probably some of them have been, have been around longer. And there's always this, you know, this is how we've always done things, right? Which I understand. But I think being open to knowing that um, the demographics are changing 
even if we look in our children, you know, with the, with the generations, uh, it's changing. Uh, and we have to continue to be open to new ways of being, to new ways of doing things. So yeah, I, I think I, those are the two things I would really commend mainstream programs to continue to be open. Because uh, if we look outside our windows, um, demographics are shifting. Uh, there's different waves of immigrants that, that have come into our spaces. And I think if, if we are open, we'll be able to actually support. Uh, and, and coming in with, um, what can we learn from you? How can we support uh, over, this is how things have always been done. Yeah, um, I'm confident I'm done, I'm done speaking. No, thank you. Um, and I know we can that time is up, but I, I totally agree with everything you said, uh, my friend, but I also will add uh, not to be afraid of ask. I think that's one of the biggest things that we have experienced is that, you know, really trust those uh, organizations that are culturally relevant and, and let, have them being part of those conversations is the very beginning. One of the things that we always experience is that sometimes they bring you to the table when everything is already done. It's that, you know, it's a done deal, right? And they want to have this um, organization to just sign off on something that they have created without really utilizing the expertise and experience of those organizations. And I think one of the things that is very effective is that you know, working, having the same experiences that I'm proud that uh, organizations that work with very specific uh, communities is that we can relate to a lot of that. You know, we work very closely with other organizations at Asian Women United. You know, we work very closely with, you know, Comfort. She will come and say, okay, what do you think? This is what we see and what is your, you know, experience working in the Latinx community? Really helping each other, supporting each other, but not wait until you really see and this huge Latinx community in this suburban area and you just wanted to out of nowhere, you know, create programming when you don't know the reality of your community or the community you are serving or the community you are about to provide services to. That's very important. And the other thing is that meaningful collaborations are very important. But the meaningful, you know, and what that means and how that look like, it's very, very important to really have those critical conversations. It's just not about having somebody at the table to say, okay, we're working with the Latinx community, right? But we, how we let this um, communities and community organizations lead their work because the experience come, you know, the experience we have comes from our community. I just need to not wake up today saying, oh, I'm an expert in a community, community, the Latinx community. It's years and years and years of experience and learning from our communities, what is effective and, and what works and what doesn't work. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Rosario and Comfort, for all of your knowledge and wisdom that you shared with us today. Um, yeah, I think we are good to close out. If um, any of you two have any closing remarks or anything. I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity. I think it's always great to share with my colleagues and friends. And, you know, we are here in the same boat. And I think, you know, the only and the only way that we're going to end this gender violence by working together. That's the only way. And I'm very happy to be here. So thank you. Gracias. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Thank you to our panelists. Thank you to Vanessa. Thank you so much, Laura, for moderating the questions in the chat. Um, it has been wonderful. We are so grateful to hear from you. So thank you, everyone.